Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and today it's Doug Foy, the former president of the Conservation Law Foundation in Boston, Massachusetts. He then went on to take a position in the, in the state government in Massachusetts under Governor Mitt Romney. He's been running a firm called Serafix for a number of years, consulting on environmental energy, transportation, and climate issues. He serves on a number of board of directors, and he's been awarded with a number of awards of, of great accomplishment. So delighted to have Doug on the show today. Hey, Doug, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thanks, Ted, and thanks for inviting me. Well, and where are you sitting right now as we speak? Are you in Boston? I'm sitting in my office in Boston, downtown Boston, looking out at the Boston Harbor. It's outside my front window. I've, I've been to your place, and I, I remember the great view that you have there. Yeah, yeah. I can picture it. How great. So what, what are you up to uh, today or this week? What's current? Well, I got back to Boston uh, the end of last week. I've been in Montana where I have a place and uh, skiing and hanging out in the mountains. I came back. I've been sort of re Booting, a bunch of things going on um, in, in the businesses. and uh, But this morning, actually, I did something wonderful. I just joined the board of a local organization, Community Rowing. I, I have a long history of rowing, and uh, among other things. And uh, there's this wonderful organization in Boston on the Charles River that is built around the premise of making rowing available to all the kids in the city of all stripes and sizes. And they had a erg contest today for the middle school kids in boston 1200 kids racing on ergometers at the new balance track which is this huge facility in boston and it was i'll tell you the energy level the the vibrancy in this place was like it just lit you up and i spent a couple hours there just hanging out and helping uh but, but it was i mean these kids were just totally cranked up these are middle school kids fifth grade sixth grade eighth grade um it was great fun and it's something that, i'll do how, that, be involved how, does, how does it how does that work i mean i thought they're rowing what's the connection here they're rowing but there's some sort of a track that they're on no they're on an ergometer so there's a they're the machines that are the classic sort of worldwide um, rowing machine state-of-the-art rowing machines built by a company in vermont owned by a couple of brothers in vermont called the concept to ergs and ergometers and they're elegant incredibly sophisticated machine that has computer reads on it so it can tell you exactly how you're doing so everybody from olympic quality athletes who train on these things to kids who have never been on them can row and can compete against each other they had like 50 ergometers so they had these schools racing against each other and there's a huge message board literally tracking who's winning in these races based on the digital reads from these computers. So sure. it's really quite the scene. There are world championships on indoor rowing now are on there? these machines. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and it just so happened that it was in this huge uh, athletic facility that New Balance is built in Boston that they make available to the community. So it was, but it was, that's what I did this morning. I suppose it has something to do with environmental stuff because it's on the Charles River ultimately. And that's part of the experience. But for me, <laughs> Just seeing these kids just lit on fire was really made you feel young again. That's for darn sure. Yeah, I, I thought you were going to answer with some sort of, uh, you know, erudite discussion of some environmental laws proceeding. No, no, nope. but, 
But while we're at it, because I didn't know this until I was doing a little bit of poking around in your resume this morning, but I didn't realize that you had been an Olympian uh, rowing. Were you in the eight in the Mexico Olympics in 1968? No, I was in. I was on the team. I was actually an alternate in the four. We had a four with a four without coxswain. Um, and so it was Mexico, and uh, we had had to, we had made the team. Then we trained in Colorado, actually in the Black Canyon of the Gunnison uh, um, at altitude. So we trained there, and then Mexico City, um, and then I was on the national team the following year. They went to Austria for European Championships and whatever. So, and I had rode in college. I had never rode before I went to college. Actually, I walked on to as something to do in the winter to stay in shape. Because I had been playing, I, I walked onto the football team and then my roommate decided after we played football in the fall that we should do something to stay in shape. And we went on to, to the rowing team and you know, it became quite a passion. I still oh, right. you think, you, yeah. your Congratulations. I mean, those are huge accomplishments, you know, obviously. Yeah, it was, well, it was fascinating. Mexico was a fascinating experience. And it was the first third world country, developing world country to actually host the games. So it was a really big deal for Mexico. And uh, where did you where did you grow up, Doug? Where was home for you? I grew up in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, central New Jersey, and then northern New Jersey. And um, um, first by the ocean um, as a kid, and then uh, my father moved to another job, and we moved up into central North Jersey, and um, in a beautiful little town with lakes and trails and. So I'd spend most of my youth, my brother and I, outside doing something outside. Sports or something, right? Sports or wandering through the woods or building, you know, snow forts or doing whatever, riding our bikes, hiking, yeah. whatever. So. And then and then off you went to, to Princeton, uh, which is, I guess, where you took up rowing. But yeah. I was interested, electrical engineering and physics? Yeah, you took, yeah. The, I, uh, you took the easy road. What? Yeah, I took the the light <laughs> curriculum. Um, and phys- I mean, Princeton uh, and the electrical engineering department was quite quite uh, a good one. But the physics department is world class. I mean, it's sort of the the among the finest physics programs anywhere, along with probably the Cavendish Labs in Cambridge and a couple of uh, MIT, um, Caltech. But um, and so it was sort of irresistible. And I had a science gene that had always sort of motivated me. So, yeah. So studied physics, loved it, um, rode, played football, um, had a great time, loved being at Princeton. And, um, and then I ended up going to Cambridge on a fellowship. And um, But I was too ultimately too argumentative to be a... Uh, <laughs> scientist I and so I ended up applying to law school I applied to one law school I'm in Cambridge on a Churchill fellowship and uh, I applied to Harvard and figured mm, what the heck I'm gonna give it a shot and I took the law boards and and came back and, and went to law school and did you did you envision that that how how are you going to focus that law degree did you have, did you have a plan or a, a... Well, you know, I, I think there was always this, uh, the, uh, the wiring diagram in me to be focused on environmental issues. I, I grew up with a, a, my father was a huge gardener. Um, so we spent a lot of time gardening and doing things out in the 
background and my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was a birder and I still can identify. She started teaching me about birds when I probably when I was four years old. I have one of the original Roger Torrey Peterson books. Um, I can still recognize birds that I've never seen before. You know, I literally see a bird go by. Oh, I, I know what that bird is. And um, so I think that there was something that always drew me to the natural world. And, um, uh, and physics was part of that because it's the sort of ultimate science of describing why the world works the way it works. And then going to law school, I was pretty early on um, headed toward environmental stuff. I took the very first environmental law course that Harvard Law School ever offered, taught by Larry Tribe, who became a famous constitutional lawyer. But at the time, he was a young um, professor there, and he taught that course. And so that sort of headed me off in that direction. And I, then, and then you, I met you when you were the, the head of Conservation Law Foundation. But right. Were, were there stops before that, after, after law school, or did you go directly to CLF? No, I didn't. I went to um, I went to a downtown law firm in Boston, a really good one, um, a very uh, elite quality firm, small, Hill and Barlow, um, which produced a whole bunch of people that became expat the Patriots governors. Bill Weld was there; he became governor of Massachusetts. Mike Dukakis was there; he became governor of Massachusetts. There were people that just sort of sprung out of this firm and went into public service and public interest stuff. I was there for a couple of years, learned the tools of litigation and, and other things. Um, and then I went, and I, I think I was the second paid employee at the Conservation Law Foundation. And the executive director who was an unsalaried volunteer, a terrific guy. But And when he left, um, the board had to decide which of the two people there could, should run the place. <laughs> was it like a big guy? And so I ended up getting that job, and then we built CLS into what it became and uh and what did what but, did it, what what did it become well it became it's a passionately regional organization it focuses on new england the six new england states and we, we did cases all over the country i was involved in alaskan oil drilling and other things because of things we did in new england that then became models for elsewhere in the country or the world but we um the organization started out as a small, there were two of us, then three of us, then five of us, then 10, then 20, then 50, then 100. Um, it started out as a, as a law organization founded originally to do land conservation and to work with land trusts and stuff around New England. And when I took over as executive director, shortly after I took that job, the federal government announced that it was going to drill for oil on George's Bank the fishery in New England. And the organization had never litigated anything. There were literally were only three lawyers there. And we challenged that. Um, the board was pretty nervous about that. Right? Um, and we were taking on the federal government, the Justice Department, the oil industry. Oil industry intervened. Covington and Burling was their lawyer. I mean, he's all these high-flying law firms. Um, we challenged it. We got the first injunction against offshore oil and gas drilling ever in the country uh, the folks at nrdc who had lost a bunch of those cases told us we can't you can't win no they're going to crush you we said okay and we won that case went to the supreme court on an emergency appeal where we won again when we won in district court one in the court of appeals one in the supreme court and then stopped every successive 
uh, lease sale after that. And George's Bank was then removed from leasing five, 10 years later. And that started us down a path of using litigation as a tool. And it was in the early days of the heyday of environmental litigation. So we filed lawsuits on oil and gas, on fisheries management, cleaning up harbors, Boston Harbor, and a bunch of others, air pollution. Um, we did probably 100 utility cases trying to force the utility industry to invest in energy efficiency, stop building coal-fired power plants. Uh, we did childhood lead poisoning cases to protect children from lead poisoning. We did transit cases to force transit investment uh, rather than just building highways everywhere. Um, so the organization became a multifaceted lawyers, scientists, economists. Um, we prided ourselves on molding solutions rather than just stopping bad stuff. I mean, it, we felt obligated to actually craft an answer to things that were uh, so Boston Harbor. We spent a lot of time figuring out, helping the state figure out how to build the treatment works and how to get it done. And when they had, we filed that case in 1983 and the goal was to clean the Harbor up. So the graduating high school class of the year 2000 could swim in its own water. Cause these are kids that couldn't afford to go to Cape Cod to get to a beach. So if they couldn't swim here, they couldn't swim anywhere. And this Commonwealth at the time told us, no, 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 that couldn't be done before 2020. 40 years later, and we said, no, that's ridiculous. And it was clean by the year 2000, and the kids can swim in that water now, everywhere. You catch striped bass off the bridge in Charlestown, four foot long. So the organization was focused on a variety of environmental issues, ultimately, and climate change as well, but very much committed to forging answers. So that's why we had a staff of economists, a staff of scientists, fisheries management people, lead poisoning experts, community organizers. And the organization is still thriving 50 years later. Um, it had, we had offices in all six New England states um, uh, and by design focused on those states and then what the regional opportunities were. Well, congratulations. And I, I hooked up with you um, with when the big dig was going on in, in Boston. The big dig <laughs> yeah. was planned for Boston. And and what was the, what was the story there? That This was like a an enormous tunnel that was going to go right underneath the downtown. Yeah, yeah. Well, the highway had been built in the 50s, classic 50s mentality, built a hideous, terrible, elevated highway through the center of the city rip out the neighborhoods and build the highway. So you had a six or eight lane elevated structure that cut the city of Boston off from its waterfront. The waterfront was of course polluted, heavily polluted harbor, one of the dirtiest in the country. Um, so nobody wanted to be in the water anyway, but still there was no way to even get there. And the proposal was to bury the road, which in theory was a really good idea. And in fact, ultimately has proven to be a wonderful result for Boston. But it also was going to cost $15 billion. And the Commonwealth was going to pay a fair amount of that. Um, so we went into it saying, well, we're in favor of tearing the road down. We think that's a really good idea. Why don't you just tear the damn road down and invest all this money in the transit system? And the Commonwealth said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're not going to do We don't need the transit. You know, we, they, uh, this road isn't going to fill up with cars. And we said, 
of course it's going to fill up with cars and you're going to make air quality worse, even though you'll make visual quality much better. So we filed a lawsuit to force them. What they had said in their environmental impact statement was the road won't fill up with cars and make air pollution worse because we're going to do all this other transit stuff, build the green line to Somerville and do all this. And we went in and said, okay, your environmental impact says you're going to, the impact statement says you're going to do all this. We're going to file a lawsuit to make sure you do all that. And we're going to hold you to those promises. And that's what happened. And those became known as the CLF transit commitments. And it was $5 billion worth of transit investment. It extended the green line to Somerville, which is now open. I got in the green dine yesterday and it had Union Square as its destination, which is in Somerville. Near, and then it goes to Tufts. It's hugely important transit investment, a bunch of other things. And that was that lawsuit. We also originally the proposal was to, once they tore the road down, they were going to fill all that space up with new buildings. And we said, no, whoa, whoa. This is the perfect example to create a perfect opportunity to create the connection to the water. We had already filed the lawsuit to clean up the harbor. So we're going to have a clean harbor. Let's have a park that connects the city to its waterfront. And that became the Greenway, the Rose Kennedy Greenway, which is instead of having buildings in that where the road used to be, we have this beautiful linear park that runs all the way through the city. That was also part of the lawsuit. That's Um, fantastic. That's fantastic. Amazing, amazing. Uh, Congratulations. What what amazing accomplishments uh, at CLF. And I'm glad that it's still going strong. 2003, Mitt Romney appointed, uh, elected governor of Massachusetts. And Alex Foy to be his, I, I, What's the, what was the title? What was the title of your of your? I was secretary or chief of Commonwealth Development. So Commonwealth Development, Commonwealth Development, which is four agencies: housing, transportation, environment, and energy. And I, so I didn't vote for Mitt Romney. I voted for the other person. Um, I'm a I'm a Democrat or an independent in Massachusetts. Most of us are independents, but um, he got elected, and he can't he, his his um his uh campaign staff had been coming to clf asking questions and wanting to understand things like climate change and transit and stuff and then the stuff would pop up in the campaign they actually were paying attention and i thought wow and we were agnostic we would talk to any political candidate that wanted to be talked to and so i thought wow i'm really thinking carefully about this and then he two days after he was elected um and i, I literally i had never met him um he and the guy who had run his campaign and then became Secretary of Administration and Finance called me up and said, uh, we have an idea sort of based on the way you guys are structured because we were a matrix organization. We had the way we covered issues and the way we had different skill sets applied to them. And, and they said, we think that the housing, transportation, environment agencies need to be much better coordinated to think about siting of housing, think about transit connections, walkability, think about the environmental impact of all this. And you guys have been doing all that in an integrated way. And we'd like to integrate that in state government. And so we want to combine those three agencies into one big effort. And we'd like you to head that agency. And if you don't agree to do it, we won't do it. (laughs) <laughs> and i said oh hell um i said well you need to add energy to that equation but okay and so that's got me into government and um 
it was quite a run, uh, you know. And then, of course, uh, Mitt Romney went off to run for president, and I went into the private sector. But in government, you know, it, well, you know, it's an incredibly intense experience. Um, it's wonderful. Uh, you feel the pressure, the weight of the public purpose and the public civic obligations every day. You wake up, you live and breathe it every day. And, you know, I think we got a lot of interesting stuff done. We wrote the first climate plan, I think, in the country, certainly for Massachusetts. We did all these. We pulled the final trigger on the lawsuits that I filed at COF to get the transit stuff built. Um, we did a whole pile of stuff on on integrating housing and school siting and walkability into the way Commonwealth money was spent. It was it was a wonderful experience. I, I, I recommend government. Anyone who's had the chance, particularly later in their career when they can get into a fairly high level, really something. And what about the what about Reggie, uh, uh, the regional yep. greenhouse gas initiative? Uh, it sounds like you spearheaded that, or you were able. Maybe yeah. this goes back to all your connections when you were at CLF. You're already working with all these states, right? Right. Yeah. No, we did, Reggie. Uh, it was a combination effort amongst a bunch of states. Gina McCarthy, who then went on to go to EPA and then be climate czar for um for the president um biden uh she was my we had a bunch of people in my agency who were babysitting the different agencies who were in the big agencies so and gina was in charge of the environmental agency to oversee it and then we had our i had secretaries in charge of each of those who reported to me but and so and then she went to connecticut so she was carrying the flag in connecticut turns out that um, that Brad Campbell was in New Jersey, who now had CLF, um, and New York and Massachusetts. Those four states were the craftsmen of this. I was a spearhead in Massachusetts. And ultimately, Governor Romney didn't sign it because he wanted to run for president and he had to turn away from all that we had done on climate, even though he knew, and I know he knows how important it all was. I mean, he embraced our climate plan. And ultimately, I knew the next governor would sign it. So yeah, Reggie was a a work of serious effort by all the states, but certainly those four were the pivotal players that got it done. Fundamentally, this was a, an organization or a, um, an agreement amongst these states that they that they could allow carbon trading between them. That- yep, on a regional basis, and I, with California, the New, the Northeast states in California are something like the third or fourth biggest economy in the world. We're I mean, talking about a really significant thing, and California was working on its own trading regime when we did Reggie. The Europeans were fascinated with this because they thought everything had to go through Washington, and we were saying no. No, Washington isn't going to get this anytime soon, but we're going to get it um, and and did. Yeah, so it trades carbon in the utility sector. There was an effort to actually extend it recently to the transportation sector, which has been stillborn at the moment, but I think will eventually happen. Mm-hmm. But it's been very effective and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars generated by the trading regimes have been invested in energy efficiency in the Reggie states. Right. Now, what does one do after one's been the chief of Commonwealth development? <laughs> Once one takes a deep breath. <laughs> Actually, we went to um, my uh, maiden night. She and I went down to visit friends in Miami the day after I left government. 
and they had invited us down. So we go down there. And I remember getting up that morning. It must have been a Saturday morning. I left on a Friday. And I got up on a Saturday morning and I picked up the Miami Herald paper and opened it up and realized I actually don't have to worry about anything that I'm going to read this paper today. Because when you're in government, every day you pick up the paper and something happens that you didn't expect or you know, don't surprise me. And there were always surprises. And I remember the feeling of, oh, well, that's sort of a relief. I don't have to worry about this right now. And then I went into the private sector. Um, and I, uh, we set up a consulting business and then we set up and then we launched a, a series of companies. I'm a big believer that the three major players in climate change, you know this really well, you've been in it. The advocacy groups that have to be pounding on the door and demanding better performance. Government, which has an enormous role to play in cleaning up our act and dealing with the climate challenge. Um, but ultimately, scale is going to happen in the private sector. We need companies to be embracing these targets, to be making a lot of money, pursuing the right things, um, doing good and doing well. Um, so I ended up in the private sector helping a series of companies that are focused on climate change agendas. We launched a couple. I was on the board of several. And uh, that's where I spend most of my time now. I'm on a bunch of nonprofits as well. But I'm a huge believer that private enterprise has got to fully engage to solve the climate crisis. Right. And and I, I noticed, uh, I, I know you've been involved with Amoresco. You've been on the board yeah. for a number of years. Green, are you? Yeah. Fred Rob Pratt's company. What yeah. Is- what is RainBank? I, I hadn't heard of it. Uh, RainBank, well, that's still a startup phase, but it's working away. RainBank is a stormwater management company, urban stormwater management. And it works on the principle that if you can deal with the peak flows, you can save a lot of capital that otherwise has to be invested in pipes and treatment works. So the question of how to shave the peaks in a big storm event becomes an enormously interesting opportunity. And RainBank's principal goal is to, is to use flat surfaces, whether they're roofs or parking lots or others, as places, if you put, a, if you put controls on the, on, the, on the rain pipes coming off the flat roof, you can hold two inches of water in that roof and serve as a storage facility for an hour, two hours, until the system can catch up with the flows. And then you release the water. And that's the, str- that's the strategy under Rainbank. Um, literally, uh, storm, surge, storage. That, that is that's fascinating. Uh, Acumetrics? Acumetrics, is a, it, it was a fuel cell company. Um, it sold its fuel cell uh, side. It is now a um, smart battery, uh, um, ruggedized battery company. And of course, batteries become an increasingly important part of our future. Um, so that's a, that's a very high-tech battery company. And the other company we started, Renew Energy Partners, is an energy efficiency finance company. So it raises private capital to invest in efficiency measures in other people's buildings. So right now you're serving on, I'm, I'm guessing, seven or eight boards? It seems that. Yeah, I, I was trying to retire and I'm doing a really crappy job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I, I don't know, you. I, when I hear about um, your grandchildren, you're reading to your grandchildren, I hear about they're out in Concord, that's not far away. I hear about your place out in Montana, I hear about your place in 
in Vermont. And, Sugarbush, yeah. Sugarbush. I'm not worried about Doug Foy. Uh, I, I usually ask my guests, how do they maintain balance? But it seems like you, you've got it covered here. Well, I feel blessed. I've had incredible colleagues all my career, just like you. Um, you know, wonderful people that I've been privileged to work with and for. Um, I, you know, the trajectory of my career has been, I didn't plan it that way, but it's starting out in an environmental advocacy group and, and in government and now in the private sector. I, you know, if I had it to do over again, I'd probably do the same thing again. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, it's, and, but I still get, I, you know, part of me is still fascinated with the natural world and wants to be out in the natural world. So I spent a lot of time backpacking. I spent a lot of time skiing hiking, um, taking my grandchildren out into those places, taking myself and my friends and family out into those places. And I still am happily trucking off for six day backpacks in the Beartooth Mountains in Montana. That's to be with that beautiful place. Um, yeah, so. good stuff. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. So good to talk to you today. Oh, it's great to talk to you, Ted. And, and take care. Thanks for having me on. See you soon. See you. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.